Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about, though more and more are each day. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer-slash-editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I will be your host for today. But, of course, it's not just me. Please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Hey, Liam. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward. I believe this is our first repeat guest that we're having. And um, I'm getting more and more curious about our topic for the day as I listen to this individual, Jonathan Cooey, on his own stream, uh, GigaOm Biological. I think I'm finally understanding some of the science myself that I wasn't getting until now. Yeah, and, and it's a whole lot. For anybody watching today, um, I just want to say everybody who has gone down uh, the rabbit hole, if you want to call it that, um, but it, it's a very serious research topic. But everybody who has, who has followed as much evidence as they could um, has had a difficult time putting it all together because it is, a, it is such a huge and broad amount of information that covers um, many branches of biology. So it's not simple for anyone. Nobody should think it's simple. We're going to do the best we can to corner perhaps two or three topics and see how well we can uh, make them plain. Uh, but it's not an easy job. And uh, and, I, and I've been talking with Jonathan a little bit about ways to uh, possibly make it simpler going forward. Um, but it's it's a lot of work. Mm, indeed. Well, let's bring on the man himself and see if he can help us figure this out. Welcome, Jay. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Goodness sakes, uh, I I can't believe I'm the first double uh, the double guy here. I feel very uh, honored. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's let's get started. I didn't even you didn't even fire me up about what we were going to talk about. So this is going to be kind of interesting. Uh, shooting from the hip here. Well, um, I I think that uh, I saw Charles trying to get into the room. He may be having internet problems. Um, so, you know, hopefully there will be four of us uh, here soon, but, um, what I think that we may want to do today is, um, is kind of, uh, create a little bit of a timeline as in let's go back in history. Let's see if we can lay a foundation, like, you know, what, what happened that relates to the potential origin story, um, you know, a potential coherent story as it all fits together, which I think we have a lot of pieces of, but I think there are more pieces to come. Um, but let's go back pre-2000. And I want to ask you, Jonathan, what is the most important information that you know, uh, either either from your own background as a biologist or from what you've studied during the pandemic, that is likely to be part of uh, the origin story as the truth would be revealed? I really like how you chose to phrase that question, um, because I think that 
that that's been my my pitch for a long time is that we have to go pre-pandemic and look at the biology from a pre-pandemic perspective before we can really start to put into context what's incongruent about what they've currently said and what we've been currently told about what's happened. And so if you go pre-pandemic, um, there are a couple authorities in the medical field which have come out, came out very early. Um, one character that's virtually disappeared from the narrative is Wolfgang Wodach from Germany. Um, another one is Knut Witkowski, um, a guy from Rockefeller University in New York City. Both of these guys spoke out very early in the pandemic about a phenomenon where uh, pneumonia-like illness, PLI, and, and, and uh, influenza-like illness, ILI, were a group of designators for elderly respiratory disease with a certain suite of symptoms and often without a test needed these would be assigned to either influenza or an unknown coronavirus. And so this was just a, let's say, a standard way of explaining a certain amount of people dying every year all around the world and the seasonality of it. And so the first thing to understand is that they have told us very specifically that before 2020, no one was dying of a coronavirus. And in fact, they've made statements that are dubious in the media in the last year and a half about how rhinoviruses are actually the primary source of the common cold when before 2020 you can find medical textbooks and common brochures and and even novels saying that the common cold is actually coronaviruses and so it's very strange inversion there so if you start there and you say that before 2020, there was a certain amount of people every year, and it was significant. It was between 25 and 30% of all respiratory disease in elderly people was thought to be unknown coronaviruses. And then after 2020, those deaths were all gone. And you also know that influenza was all gone. And many people said it was viral replacement or competition or all this other stuff. But what we needed to see was all cause mortality rate. And that's the other thing pre-pandemic that none of us really understand. Before the pandemic in America, every year, 2.8 million people were expected to die, plus or minus 200,000. So that number should have been the starting point of describing the pandemic and its impact on our societies from the very beginning. But instead, every graph on the news started with zero and went to some positive number of COVID cases or COVID deaths. And so if you start pre-2020 and think about the origins, the first thing to understand is that before 2020, there were coronaviruses. There wasn't a lot we could do about them. They were an accepted fact. One of the many ways that elderly people could, could enter the grave, it was just normal. It wasn't a, wasn't a world health problem. Oh, Jonathan, um, can I can I stop you here? Sure, sure. Um, uh, two things. One is um, is I wanted to start even further back, like pre two thousand. That that was actually my intention, but but I, I I like the 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 background that you've laid down, and I do want to um, I want to point out that we're talking about an anomaly here, this uh, viral interference. I'm going to stop there and say it's important to recognize the number of anomalies that have been presented that we're supposed to swallow that are part of the, the you know, uh, authorities explanation for what has happened. That's one of them, viral interference. We've never seen that before, right? Why, why wasn't it that other rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, 
uh, influences competing for for what? Like the same entry point into the body? You know, um, people go, well, I I wasn't sick with this and that at the same time. Well, if your body temperature already started heating up, you probably weren't getting sick with a second thing. So that's not the way to think about it. Right. The way to think about it is um, it did your body's reaction to this block out next week's infection or something like that. But that's one. Um, Another anomaly that we've seen is the explanation for Omicron. And that would be going back to the year 2000. So that kind of peels off from what I just said in the sense that before the year of the pandemic, there were coronaviruses. And another thing to understand is that before they discovered SARS in 2002, there were SARS viruses in nature. By their own observations around the places where they have sampled these viruses, those people have seroprevalence, which means that the viruses are always jumping. And so before the pandemic, before the the year 2000, before we found these SARS viruses, which were useful in the laboratory, they were there and they were jumping into people. People were being infected. It was moving through and they're more prevalent in the places where they are endemic, like in China or Asia versus North America. There are different coronaviruses in North America than in Asia. And those viruses exchange as people move. And this has always been happening. This is not a a new phenomenon. This has always been happening. And so they tried and they tried very hard to erase this history and to make you believe that essentially you don't have any coronaviruses that bother you very much until now. And now there's one that Moderna and Pfizer can protect you from. And these tests can accurately diagnose the presence of. And these are all based on the supposition that none of this other stuff exists or happened. And I think that's what compounds the the narrative for them is that these tests then can't be as as specific as they say they are because one of the reasons why they can be in their imagination so specific is that they don't acknowledge the background level of coronavirus that now, they don't now, accurately track. Quick point of clarification, we have coronaviruses and then a subclass which we refer to as SARS coronaviruses. Is that accurate? It's accurate as far as as far as I can tell from their genetic data. But the important point to make here pretty early, and this is from a biological and evolutionary perspective as well, is that pre-year 2000, pre the discovery of SARS viruses, um, it's important to understand that the immune system would have taken a strategy against RNA using viruses. The 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 immune system, sorry, I, I hadn't been prepared for this, but this is something that's been in my head for a while. The immune system is not going to make a response to coronaviruses with red hats and co- separate from coronaviruses with blue hats, with flavoviruses with green, green hats and flu viruses with purple hats. It's going to say, what's in common with all those? What's in common with those is they need to have double-stranded RNA in order to copy themselves, and they need a special enzyme to copy double-stranded RNA that we don't have. Two very important indicators of a general RNA-dependent virus infection. And so Mm. Zeb Zelenko is one of these guys who's been saying from the very beginning that we have zinc finger proteins which detect those two things. And so if if you enable zinc finger proteins by making sure you're not short of zinc, 
most of these viruses will be eliminated before they do any meaningful infection because the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase and double-stranded RNA are both shared tight cues that are across any variant, across even different varieties of viruses, as long as they're trapped in the RNA genome. Okay, so I, I'm going to go back to Omicron for just a moment, but then, but then I want to talk about the cloud, uh, the quasi-species storm, because this is something that took me uh, a number of months to really gain uh, a toehold in my mind as I was researching so many different things. Um, but with Omicron, here was the, here's another anomaly. I just want to I want to point out the anomalies as we go, so that people understand what to think about. That that you know kind of punches a hole in the official explanations. Um, what we're, we're told that Omicron likely came from one AIDS patient where the virus in that one AIDS patient underwent like 30, 40, you know, 50 mutations, like just in the spike protein alone, um, and, but important mutations. Uh, and that's not really the way that we've seen anything happen before. We, we've never heard, heard of, hey, we've got this one virus that's going around anytime it gets into one particular patient, it can just, you know, go explode in some direction evolutionarily that would completely alter the way medicine affects it now. So that we, you know, it, it seems like it gives them a convenient excuse for continuing to reformulate vi uh, vaccines in particular. But uh, I'll stop there for a moment before we start talking about the quasi-species swarm. And let's allow Charles Rixey to introduce himself. Hey, Charles. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> hello. Um, so, uh, uh, tell us about yourself and, and what's going on with you. Oh, geez. Well, so um, at the moment, my life is a little ad hoc because I'm actually in Florida at Disney World with my in-laws. And we're actually moving in with them after we finish here because uh, we just sold our house in Texas. Um, and we sold that because I didn't want to stop doing what I've been doing for the last two years, which is investigating the origin of the pandemic. So uh, as it stands right now, uh, my studio is a little limited. It's not as nice as my office, but um, I'm knee deep into the adventure. And uh, you're basically, a lot of stuff happening just since I've been on vacation here. So I'm uh, eager to talk about it. Well, uh, thanks for taking a little time outside of your vacation um, uh, to join us. Um, <clears throat> so we got started, um, uh, you know, before you came, uh, we, we laid a little groundwork for like pre 2000 and, you know, and a little bit up to 2020 discussing what had gone on in the world up to that point in time. Uh, one thing that that I know um, was an impediment for me for under, understanding all this is the idea of the quasi-species swarm. And this sounds like science fiction. You know, the, it's a hard concept to grasp. And I've been in meetings where when I brought it up, uh, pe people in the meeting sort of chuckled, like, you know, like, what are you talking about? And, and here's the explanation, or I'm, I'm going to try to do this. Um, you don't just get one virus in you that is all genetically the same. It's not like, you know, billions and billions of copies of the precisely same, you know, 30,000 nucleotide sequence. 
um, you know, what um, among those, you know, millions or billions or whatever virions that that get into you, there is a wide variety, right? I mean, and, and this starts to make sense when you realize that that each new one kind of, you know, is a little bit different than the previous one because of single nucleotide polymorphisms that pop up here and there. You know, maybe maybe a new one has two that are different than the last one, but there's, you know, so much replication that go goes on. Not only is that true, but it's also true that over the years, these swarms that go around, they've met some other virus, some, some coronavirus that maybe was circulating in India, met up with some coronavirus that was circulating in Vietnam. And when that cloud got together in one person, it's not like it ever separated. You know, it's, it's, it's got, you know, there's no reason why these and these would not get along in a cloud together any, you know, any worse than they did just on their own. And so I think that the cloud has picked up all sorts of different coronaviruses from around the world. And well, Eric says that that up to 25% of coronavirus particles in a co-infection are recombinant. Done. Yeah, yep. so, okay. So Ralph Barrick, who who studies this stuff uh, as intensely as anyone in the world, um, who may be one of the villains of the story, but uh, uh, you know, he he thinks in terms of the quasi-species swarm, and he knows that they are interacting with each other too, right? They, they, it may be the two strands. Um, you know, it's not just uh, A and B, but they may, they may, you know, fragments of them may get together and recombine the same way that happens with influenza, not the same way that happens with influenza. That's where they recombine along the same strand, but you may have some, you know, recombination that happens during the replication process. So you wind up with just this giant mixture, you know, really think of the human population, Right. It may be that we that uh, the quasi species swarm is a good analogy for the human population, where you have perhaps several races where you could identify people somewhat, but not not like not completely or or extremely perfectly, you know, according to uh, certain uh, phenotypical features. But you can tell that there is genetic variation, and you can tell that that there were lineages that that you have to go back and. And they, they branch very far out. They weren't all from the same place. So that's yes. my species swarm. Think the human population and think that's what you breathe in and what goes all over your body. So there's really, for me, being the non-scientist, the way that I learn it and the way that I explain to others is that, well, what I focus on is one that one of the things about the quasi-species is that there's still barriers. You can only recombine with something that's close enough to you that it it's able to mix. It's like it, different breeds of dog, for instance. So there is a point at which you can know you can't directly breed with something so far away that it's not like you. So, and this is important because all of the types of uh, different of coronaviruses that have a furin cleavage site, I don't know if we've talked about that yet, but all of them that have that aspect have the barriers are too high for those viruses to recombine with the Sarbeca viruses of which SARS-CoV-2 is the primary member. And that's the main thing that Dr. Quay, when he was 
testifying before Congress, he's been saying that for a year and a half. And it's one of the most basic concepts. And I've not heard any scientist even address it, much less be able to disprove that. Okay, so it's like having this, this whole population, several lineages, they can mix to a degree, but there may be barriers to the mixing. Um, per, yeah. Perhaps you, you can think of it as having uh, religious differences. <laughs> um, I think it's even more significant than that, though, because the molecular biological steps that we understand that would be required to put a 12 or 19 amino acid insert where it is, is not the same as recombination. And so that's yeah, the thing yeah, that Gallagher Gallag was saying very early on is that he doesn't see a natural route to an insertion of that size. So there are mechanisms by which recombination occur and genes can be exchanged because we understand that they have leader sequences. And okay. so, but this is okay, different. So, so now that's a, that's a different question. So now here's what I'm going to say is um, the analogy is you have this earthly, you know, these uh, humans on earth. And then suddenly you identify that there's this particular kind of human going around and you go, what's different about this human that's going around that's, that's uh, doing a lot of damage. And you realize, huh, this isn't natural. Maybe it came from off planet. <laughs> mm. maybe, maybe this, maybe this alien popped in and this alien uh, it, it, it's replicating. It's part of the swarm, but it's, it's, it's got something different about it that, you can identify it and you know that it wasn't part of the original natural earth environment. I mean, the way that the quasi species exists as we know it for SARS-CoV-2 is that it, it's too far away from MERS, for instance, to be able to pick it up from that route. And based on the chemical structure, and the fact that there's a, the string is long enough, there doesn't appear to be a natural path. It's both too big and too different. And it would have to be, it'd have to come into, it'd have to recombine it in a certain way and all have to come in together, which I, I don't know the chemistry, but I trust the scientists when they say this much that it can't, it can't happen all at once like that. Can I make, can I make one more point about the swarm that maybe we're not, fully bringing in sure one of the things that you should definitely think of and maybe you know somebody will come and correct us but i think this is probably the best analogy or the best way to think about it is that you should think about the particular proteins that are advantageous to the coronavirus swarm in general as being what they added to the swarm because if there was a release which we believe and these genes all came out in a in a in a egg box and of the 12 eggs four of those eggs were magic. Like any coronavirus that had those eggs would be an exceptional coronavirus and in infecting people. Those are the only genes you had to worry about getting released from the laboratory because when they go into the swarm, these other crappy eggs, no one's going to use them. They're not going to go on. And so if you think about it from how maybe Charles would think about it from the perspective of a incapacitating weapon, you de design a gene like a spike protein to be neurotoxic or design it to be immunogenic and then you introduce that into the swarm and now you're really not tracking a virus you're tracking this gene and if it's toxic enough then you don't even need to be infected you just need to be around somebody that's shedding it so that your body reacts in that immunogenic way and now you have symptoms and it's 
hard to track because again it's being carried by the the swarm not by a particular virus and that particular virus illusion is very it's very unhandy for understanding what's going on okay so <clears throat> yeah uh, I, i'm reformulating my my earth my earth analogy right now and uh and i i hit a wall uh, because I got caught up uh, in a tangent of what you were saying. So let, let me try to uh, collect my thoughts here. Okay. So uh, I, I, I'm liking where we're going with the analogy. I, I think that it's going to help a lot of people begin to get this idea. Uh, some new earthling was introduced to the earth's population and they had several other features and they could intermix with some of the humans. And that feature then gets passed around if it's one that is advantageous to the human population, to the groups that, that have that. So we have this, you know, alien insertion, maybe, a, maybe a, a synthetic human being added. And they have brought something that if it is evolutionarily stable within the population, um, it, at least in the short term, then it becomes a greater and greater proportion of the, the swarm. And then so there's research and, and um, you guys may remember exactly where this came from. In fact, Jonathan, I can't recall you and I may have talked about this during uh, sort of half year cycles during the pandemic. One thing that happened in the literature is the cycle count needed to culture the virus kept going down by four every six months. And I, I don't know if you guys remember this, like alpha, I can't remember what the uh, the cycle count threshold was. Maybe it was like 27. And then for um, for gamma, uh, sorry, for delta, it was 23. And then for Omicron, it was 19. I, actually, I think it was, I think it was Wuhan strain, alpha, delta, but, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but I know that it was 16 times as much presence that you could test for. And that makes me think that what we're talking about is it's a small part of the swarm, but then it's grown as a proportion of the swarm over time. Is that possible? Is that perhaps the way the model has worked? Okay, I'll send you guys these papers later. I can't remember who I was discussing this with. I, I couldn't remember if it was Jonathan or somebody else. So um, I mean, I get the idea. I get the idea. The one reason why I don't like to use animals or people is because it 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 discards the fact that I got out of Robert Malone's video in April, which is that the vast majority or a good majority of viral particles are useless. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is you've hijacked the machinery of the cell to produce viruses and you've produced lots of them, but you produce them with lots of errors and omissions and incomplete packaging and whatever. And so let's say every, every eight or so there's one that's perfect and every other one is somehow damaged. And so you have to think about this as a, as a, almost like a, how animals in the, in the ocean breed with like, you know, just releasing all these eggs into the ocean and releasing all this spermatozoa in the ocean and hoping that they meet. The viral particle is making copies as fast as it can. And it's not really worried about errors because it knows it's going to get a few right and the rest are going to not matter. And so what's different about this virus, in my humble opinion, is that in a normal coronavirus, the virus would be not only would most of them be useless, but they would also be, they don't, wouldn't be immunogenic. 
But because they fooled around with this spike protein, even the virus particles that would have been useless are still coated in a toxic spike protein, which causes your immune system to react, which can set the ACE2 system off balance. Well, there are going to be people who like this. Maybe those are NPCs. <laughs> but I think that really, that's, that's the trick to understand is that there, that, that, that one little piece of information flipped the entire model in my head around when I heard Robert Malone say that, because it really makes a difference in terms of how you think about how the immune system would have evolved to respond. And if it was historically responding to a viral infection where the vast majority of the particles were non-infectious, then it would have focused its immunity on other things than the physical particle. Whereas they're arguing that we should make immunity to the physical particle and its coat, which is absurd. Yeah. So if you've got this human population, it, it, it's sort of like um, working at, at continents and going, hey, let's create um, let's create a solution to Australia and then just like punching a hole in the map, like right in the middle of Australia and not expecting for all these particles to just sort of move away from it a little bit, but still be there. And so, you know, if you go so specifically at one location, you know, the very center of Australia, you're not going to get rid of Australians. You know, they're just going to kind of route around it. They're going to look down in this big hole and go, hmm, I guess I'll build my home over there. But, you know, it, it, it seems silly to me uh, to begin with that people swallowed this idea of, hey, let's uh, let's target the spike protein. Um, let's have the body be a spike protein factory, which is the poisonous part so far as we know the the extra poisonous part uh, of the coronavirus and then um you know why didn't we target something that was more universal to all the coronaviruses and i think this is where charles should jump in because this is where a lot of his sort of research has brought together a lot of different threads um the short answer is they did the opposite of what they would almost always do in the past. Because A, from an immunological perspective, Jay could tell you that you don't want you don't want partial epitope coverage in something that is because it's not going to produce a a uh, I forget what the 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 wording is, but that infection isn't isn't going to uh, part it won't sterilizing immunity. Yeah, it won't. It won't provide that. And was was interesting is that the diffuse proposal that was the Eco Health Alliance uh, tried to get approved, but DARPA denied. One of the reasons they denied it was because the what they were suggesting would not provide that full coverage of the gene of, of the genome, and so it wouldn't provide sterilizing immunity in bats. And so instead what it would do is it would cause the virus to evolve, but then they wouldn't have any control over what direction that, that evolution went. So it could get better or it could get worse. So there were some people at DARPA who were knowledgeable enough that when EcoHealth Alliance came along and said, hey, we want to do this new crazy thing and you know, create a coronavirus because it'll be a, a, like a vaccine, right? That was that was the idea, and DARPA was like, "No, this is uh, this is actually kind of crazy. We know enough about this to say this is kind of crazy." So no. Well, and this is what I argued last fall: is that 
DARPA denied that, and DARPA is part of DOD. And that was very close, not exactly the same as mRNA. They were using a different, uh, a different, very closely related uh, set of little technologies to, to uh, kind of spray and to, to get best to do this. They were using different nanoparticles. But the bottom line is, is that the DOD, three years or two years after denying something almost exactly the same, was mandated for 100% of the force to use that exact same thing. So they'd already rejected it, and then they were forced to do it anyway by the president with the direction of Anthony Fauci. And to me, that was like To me, that was enough justification to not do it, to not mandate it anyway. Um, and now we found even more evidence because not so only. That, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so that's one of the big lessons from the diffused documents. Then one of the big lessons is, hey, the DoD believed that something like these vaccines was a bad idea back in 2018. Was this 2016 or 2018? 2018. 2018. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, so so they thought it was a bad idea then, and suddenly now they think it's a good idea. That's very sketchy. Um, there was something else in the literature that uh, one of the two of you pointed out to me. Um, I can't remember who mentioned it first, but Charles, you, you've come across research uh, where in the past, uh, vaccinologists thought it was a very bad idea to include a furin cleavage site within the vaccine. Yes. So that's that's another piece to this is that you know, what I did was I went through, well, more than 26, but the first 26 that I went through, uh, vaccine um, prototypes and studies that, that looked at them going back from 2004 all the way to 2019. And in every single case, whether it was HIV vaccine or for flu, or for one of the coronaviruses, MERS or SARS, they always would remove the furin cleavage site. Um, and like they contemplated leaving it the same, but certainly no vaccine that ever made it out to market ever had a furin cleavage site. Okay, why and, is the furin cleavage site something that you'd want to leave out? Why is it sort of toxic on its own? Because, <clears throat> Well, <laughs> there's actually a lot of reasons. Um, what it does is it allows the virus or the spike to get into an infinitely greater range of cells. It, well, not infinite, but <clears throat> of the major cell types, it can basically go almost anywhere in the body, anywhere that you, especially... It, in, in some cases, it crossed the blood-brain barrier. And in fact, in hypoxic conditions where oxygen is less than normal, especially 90% or less, the blood-brain barrier becomes far more permeable by this spike protein because it has your cleavage site. And as far as we know, as far as I've been able to see, that's irrespective of whether or not it's the vaccine spike or the spike itself um, the, in a normal infection. And maybe Jonathan can correct me on that, but 
from what I've been able to tell, it's, it's the spike when it's in the vaccine is actually more able to get into different tissues because there's so much more of it all at once and it's being transmitted throughout the, the bloodstream and then produced by your own body. It's just, <clears throat> but, and okay. actually, but I know that, I know that Jonathan can explain the next part better because it, it allows it to, even after it's been cleaved, it allows it to continue to um, transmit through intracellularly. And I know he can explain that better. Okay, uh, Jonathan, uh, before you do that, I, I, I'm going to throw this out. This sounds like you're giving people cars, um, except that, that one group of people, you give them the option of a, of a baby safety seat, and the other group, you don't, right? Like there's a safety feature that you could incorporate by removing this furin cleavage site, and they just didn't do that. And it's really, really important, and there was no reason for them not to do that. There, there was no reason that I've ever seen that outweighed the risks of leaving it in there, which is why it had never been done or it had never been left in there. And as we're talking about this, I'm realizing, didn't they claim they had when they were talking about putting it, you know, into the, the mRNA shots? I, I was under the impression that was the one thing that was different, whether it was specifically the fear no, of language no. site or, you know, the way you're describing it. This sounds like what they told people was being taken out or at, at a minimum in lay terms, it was being set up so that it wouldn't cleave off and then go throughout the body. Well, so kind of they, uh, what they did the, the, for, there were two main things, or one main thing that they did to the virus, which was they inserted uh, two prolines at 986 and 987 within the spike protein, which stabilized it and left the spike in its pre-fusion conformation. So, and now that's good in a way because it it it, it presents a different it presents your immune system differently. However. <laughs> you don't, there's so many other things that you could do. And what that does is it, it basically there were so many other things they could do that they didn't do. And they did this instead. And, and, and yeah, I really think he, he could explain this uh, better than I could. Um, but they always, in fact, I have on video, the, the director of vaccine development for Pfizer back in 2014, sitting next to Ralph Barrick saying we would never, and if they were, they were talking about a flu vaccine at the time, but if they test their batches as they're manufacturing, and if they found a batch of eggs or a batch of virus that had developed a furin cleavage site, they would immediately destroy the entire batch because they do not want the furin cleavage site to make it into their final product. So it's bad enough that they would destroy the batch. It's not even that they don't the want to ship it out. It's it's that they don't they don't even want this around. This and the same person, an the same person, six years later, did exactly the opposite of that. And they've never explained why. Jonathan, can you add to that? So let me. It's going to be tough, but I think I can. I'm trying. Was trying to remember everything in my head of what Charles was saying because I, if I can complement it correctly, it'll make more sense. So think first of all that the spike protein is the toolbox or the or the multi-tool that the virus is using to enter your cells. And Gallagher and and Gary, the guys that that Charles and I reported on, Charles drew attention to, and the biology of it makes sense that they identified 
common mechanism in glycoproteins of viruses from HIV to coronavirus that have this hydrophobic portion of their glycoprotein that is crucial for the fusion of the membranes wherever it happens, in the endosome or on the cell membrane itself. And so the story that they tell us is, is that when the spike protein binds with its receptor binding domain on the ACE2 receptor, then there's another enzyme that comes along that's also membrane bound and it cuts the spike protein. That's that TMPRSS uh, enzyme. If it's the ACE2 receptor here and then another enzyme comes along and cuts it so that the spike protein can change orientation and expose this hydrophobic tip or wherever it is that allows the fusion of the cell membrane with the viral membrane or the in the taking in of the cell this curds inside the endosome whatever but it's the change in conformation that exposes the otherwise protected hydrophobic portion of the spike protein that's the whole game that we're playing here and so you could bind the the argument is is you could make enzyme or sorry antibodies that block the receptor binding domain of the spike protein to prevent it from binding to ace2 but what we don't understand, and I think that this is a good way to, exp to explain it, is that the site where the, the TMPRSS cuts is a different site than the furin cleavage site. And yes. so what you're talking about is, is that this binds and then it cuts and then it changes. But what you have to remember is that if you cut the furin cleavage site, it'll change too. And so there's two problems with the furin cleavage site then. What that means is that when the virus is produced and it's in an endosome, if there's a furin cleaving enzyme present in the endosome, then the furin cleavage site will be cut and the spike protein will be armed and ready to go when it's released from the cell. That's very different than if it didn't have a furin cleavage site, it would come out of the cell with this uncleaved and so that it would still need to find a receptor that it's specific for. Whereas once it's cut, whatever it bumps into it can infect. And that's okay. very different. Okay, I'm going to try an origami analogy. Um, <laughs> essentially, essentially, you know, we have this long nucleotide sequence, but this thing, this thing bunches up into this little, I don't know, little monster, this little thing that, that goes around your body, this virion. Um, it, and it may be like, you know, taking uh, you know, a piece of paper and folding it up into some sort of origami, except it's just, it's just kind of a ball, but it, it's a really complicated ball. It's actually a really well-designed ball. It would be like, you know, taking a year to make your origami just perfect. However, there's this piece of it that if you, if you didn't have it, from the very beginning, if you just ripped off a corner of that original square, it would fold differently and then it would behave differently in the body. And there's and and so if we rip off that one really important piece, that furin cleavage site, suddenly the behavior of the virus is going to be different. So now when we're talking about how we could deal with this this thing, now we could have vaccines that that deal with it one way or another. Now that's not the only way to deal with it though. And this is where Gallagher's research comes in. So, for example, yes. So yeah. we could deal with it with uh, with small um, protein inhibitors or peptide inhibitors that keep you know, your, your drumsticks right there, that open and closed state that keep it from happening. Even even if the origami was complete, if even if the origami was complete, um, you could have these peptides glom onto the ball. Like instead of just ripping out the corner, I could have instead said, hey, 
I'm going to take something from the outside and interfere with it. And that will also stop the problem. And people might think that, oh, well, this is what an antibody does, but it's not the same thing because an antibody has all kinds of flags and things on it that cause your immune system to react to those flags. Whereas a small protein inhibitor is just something that has very high electrostatic homology with the target and it's hydrophobic, right? So it's even easier as a target. And then you just inhibit all the viruses that are present in your nose or wherever you put that, that protein. Yeah. And, and so they had that in 2003. Is that correct, Charles, when they were first doing yeah. it? And this is where, this is where the, the HIV links really come in. Because if you're in cleavage site, can, it occurs in a whole bunch of different viruses. And they have slightly different you know, construction. But there's also a furin cleavage site in HIV. That's and that motif is very particular. But there's <laughs> there's also inserts which we have we haven't gotten to yet, into yet. And there's another similarity between HIV and the coronaviruses that most people don't know about, which is the fusion peptide. And the flu, HIV, SARS, um, RSV, all of those different viruses are, have the same basic fusion peptide structure. And they're called class one fusion peptides. And Wait, uh, repeat that again. The viruses had this classic peptide structure. Is that right? Well, there's the fusion peptide. Uh, controls a different part of this of, of the process of, of of the virus getting into the cell because it's a, it's a very there's a lot of different steps the fusion peptide is one particular one and it just so happens that the hiv one is very similar to the sars one and sars-cov-2 it's it remains that way and so you can actually use depending upon uh well Based on this homology between them, in 2003, uh, Bill Gallagher and his apprentice, Robert Gary, who's important because Robert Gary is one of the five authors of the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2. So this is during the entire time that they were discussing this in early February of 2020, one of the five was one of the inventors of this process and one of the first FDA approved medications for it. So he, they, knew, they were aware of this. And it's also important that Robert Gary was the most vocally against the idea of a natural origin whenever they were talking in private. And then over the time that's come out that we've seen all their different um, discussions. But they hypothesized in 2003 that, that a fusion inhibitor that worked against HIV could also work against SARS. And some work was done on this, almost all of which was in China, interestingly enough. China has not really done any coronavirus vaccine research for the last 20 years. They've almost entirely focused on fusion inhibitors. And in 2019, China announced they discovered a fusion inhibitor that worked for MERS and SARS. And in 2020, early 2020. Two seconds. Yeah, go ahead. Make sure you guys understand that what Charles is describing is essentially 
a biological phenomenon about viruses that they would rather us not understand that the that the That's swiss good. army knife and the 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 way that this hydrophobic domain is protected during regular viral movement and opened by cleavage is something that almost all viruses use because they need to have this hydrophobic region that can and that that apparently is highly conserved because it's very effective at causing membrane fusion. So this highly exactly. mechanism is employed by lots of viruses and they knew it already back in the year 2000. Okay, so 2019, um, this is an interesting yes. year. And you're saying that China uh, came out with fusion inhibitors. Now this was, this was research going on prior in the US. Is this also at Wuhan? And was this also US funded research? think at the same time they were testing remdesivir they were also testing fusion inhibitors in china that's interesting now it, i think it was february Correct. 2020 was the letter out of china um to one of the journals um maybe I, I can't remember which one but i think it was february 4th they said hey we've tested um chloroquine and remdesivir and they showed to be great in vitro uh viral inhibitors did they mention in that letter the uh, and and maybe I just wasn't looking for it. Maybe I wasn't aware of what to be looking for at the time, or did they just not mention it publicly? China mentioned it. They the, did. China did mention it several times, in fact, in papers written by Xi Jinping along with Xi Bojiang, who was he and Bill Gallagher are, are the pioneers of this stuff back into the 90s and Xi Jiang moved back to China and for the last decade is all he's done is work with fusion inhibitors and he had at least three or four papers in the month of February he had written and published about this technology and in fact later in March he he and Xi Jinping announced that they discovered that one of their previously developed inhibitors also worked for SARS-CoV-2 so is it possible that China has been treating their population with these fusion inhibitors the whole time and we just haven't been told? Yes. I think only they're Hollywood stars. Yeah, because yeah. it's interesting that now apparently there is a big SARS-CoV-2 infection problem there, and I'm not sure what to make of that. Well, if let me there... say two things that I learned today, Liam, which is really cool. Number one is that there is no mandatory vaccine in China, only mandatory testing every day. And they do test everyone every day in order to recharge the app on your phone. Some mm. teenagers have learned how wow. to use, uh, use a screenshot capture in order to get into raves and stuff in case it gets closed down. They don't get recorded, but that will soon be done. Um, I learned this from Via Via, uh, somebody who's in China and recently described it. But everybody mm -hmm. needs to be tested. That's real. But there is no mandatory vaccine and the vaccine gives you no benefit on the on the on the surveillance app interesting that is interesting because in our discussions we're often referencing like you Isn't just it? said today the, the, the social credit system that's being used intensely in china in the COVID context to shut people out of their bank accounts and you're telling me that's not related to the shots it's only related to if you are considered currently an active carrier of the virus it's a hundred percent sure. I learned that this morning. I learned that this morning from a very reliable source. Let me just say it like that. 
Interesting. That well, throws a big curveball into things. Hell yeah, it does. So, I'm going to throw this in because it, it, it's related. But um, my my model of, of China is that we have been constantly lied to in the West about sort of what the West relationship with China is. My belief has always been that um, that they uh, the U.S. and China have sort of a, a common underlying corporate background, and that uh, neither nation is is independent as it would as the popular you know. I, I would call it facade is and um, and that very often China has been used as a laboratory for authoritarianism. For instance, all the cameras on the streets, if you go yeah. back, like, you know, 20 years when uh, I, I don't remember how many years, but like, you know, uh, cameras on the streets everywhere. Well, that was done in China first. But now if you count the cameras that are in the cities and on the streets or whatever um, per person, it's about the same number now in the U.S. as it is in China, um, and and that was something that I think people in the U.S. would have been uh, uh, would have rejected outright had it had it started uh, here in the U.S. But you know maybe uh, what's going on is that China is the uh, is the test case for these these phone apps, and they're seeing how people hack around them and whatnot. But they're, they're using te everyday testing. That's just nonsense. But, but Matthew, but Matthew, it is vital to re to to reiterate, not the shots. It's it's the testing. It's not the shots. Here's the other thing right. that you need to know. They have it down to the neighborhood, so you have to use your phone yeah. to pass in and out of your neighborhood. Not even your town, but your neighborhood. So you have to have a green one. And then the crazy thing is, the reason why it's all crashing is because the infrastructure that feeds back the test sometimes in some remote places takes as long as four or five days to update. And so then it's not really real time and people are just getting screwed by that. So it's yeah. it's, it's impressive what's happening over there. It's an illusion. What I'll say is that in Wuhan, the as an example, because Wuhan has 11 million people, it's, just, it's the same size as Los Angeles. And it's broken up into 7,200 different neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods are then, um, they fall under 171 sub-districts. And then those sub-districts are combined into 13 districts. And then you have the city of Wuhan itself. So all the way down, there's levels and sub-levels of organization. And it, even though their, their average take-home pay is like $1,000 a month, in this area, they are world leading. And Wuhan happened to be one of the cities that was a test bed for their, their face recognition software in their police systems. And so what's interesting is that when we talk about like the beginning of the outbreak, people, and we, we talk about the, the World Health Organization report and the terrible maps and the, set, and the mystery behind the first 174 cases, the reality is, is that at any time they can go back and look at the geolocation. They can track all of this for any human being. They, they probably knew within 24 hours, if they didn't know already, who patient zero was. And they could have given us exquisite information and we could know exactly where this virus came from, except the only reason that we don't is probably because they just don't want us to know where it came from because it's <laughs> okay it's the lab so it's yeah, they don't have this is insane allow me to throw out a hypothesis that the real reason for the release of SARS-CoV-2 
was to see if this level of totalitarian networking could be the difference between whether or not a population had infection sweep through or not. Could you control the masses well enough to control disease? Is, is that plausible? I would say I mean, it's plausible, but they, they could have a thousand reasons. But that, that's well, no, I, that there's level, a lot of different things it could be, but I, I couldn't. Yeah, that, that well, level of following humans around with, with uh, cameras and technology that they could identify absolutely the, you know, when and where pathogens might jump between one human being and another. That alone is is very interesting and revealing. I think I'm just going to have to let that bounce around in my head a bit. Um, but yeah, maybe we can go on from here. Yeah, and and can I just add? I'm starting to wonder for real if even the discussion of trying to argue poorly in favor of natural origin, and then the other side being lab leak. I wonder if that whole discussion is a diversion. I like, I wonder if that, and I think Jay, either you said it or you said something that made me think it in one of your streams recently. I think your most recent one really clicked for me that it's not actually at all the right question as to whether it came from a lab, because that argument relies on fundamental misunderstandings of virology. And it seems like, um, occupying ourselves with trying to and it's it's very useful information but it almost feels like it was sort of perhaps foreseen that we would get caught up in this discussion and not be pursuing a better understanding of where the actual threat is um or how our immune system actually works like it feels like those are things i haven't turned my attention to at all and thank goodness for your stream because you you you, you know can you speak to that like narratively speaking and well, if I do, just just prepare yourself. I'm going to go way out. Um, this is what I was going to teach over the next month or so. I'll see if I can put it out in two minutes right now. But looking at the population pyramids around the world and thinking about population as a problem with a solution or as a problem with, with opportunities, I've started to come to a pretty dark idea of what's going on. And, and just imagine this for one second. There are 7 billion people or 9 billion people on the planet. Does anybody know what the number is right now? It's, it's actually just 8 billion. Okay, so there's 8 billion people on the planet, and most people would agree from Ted Turner down to us that this might be the highest number of people that will ever be on the pop. Maybe it'll be 10 before it plateaus and then goes back down. From a long-term transhumanist biological perspective, this is the last time that there will ever be this level of genetic diversity available for sampling on the planet. Forever after this, we will have a smaller population that never expresses this much diversity or this much genetic data, which would ultimately be fed into an AI that could figure out how the genome works. So if you were going to be the transhumanist monsters that these people say they are and get the population back down to 500,000 people, you better not miss this opportunity to make a once in a millennia generation, possibly ever, library of the potential of the human genome. 
And so now what is China doing? They're sampling people every day. What if they're just making a, a giant AI database of how these people's genes change over their lifetime while they have them? And America knows that that's what they're doing. And so they need to implement the same system before they lose this opportunity as well. How's that for a nice science fiction book? I, I think it's very possible. I, I think that it's a mistaken notion. I think that what they believe they can do with this information and what they believe they can derive from this information is actually nonsensical. But I see this across the board with the elite technologists. Um, they seem to have this fallacy. You know, we can know what people are going to do. You can upload your consciousness. And and it, it's, it's as if they don't understand that there is state dependence that there is environment dependence to our consciousness. If if each of us was in a different environment, you know, a more free country, a less free country, our actions would be different. No matter, you know, invariant genetics, different environments, you get different responses. But those responses do build over time. You know, you do come up with habits. And when you move a person after habits are built, um, that's not the same thing as if they had grown up on that other continent, right? Um, and, and so but to your point, to your point, if you want to monitor these changes and these interactions with your genes and the environment, epigenetic changes, you need to sample over time. So yeah. instituting a regular system of needing to submit to a test could essentially be turned into an infrastructure which can monitor the epigenetics of everybody on the planet over time. I'm not trying to get overly conspiratorial. I'm just trying to say that if you want to think about what's going on here and realize that China hasn't even hasn't even mandated a vaccine but they mandated the test a long time ago uh, yeah you know um, let, let's I, I think we should have like another entire show on this thread and this may be one that I want yeah. to like, uh, like Jeff rose into um, but uh, let, let's get back to to our more mainline discussion oh yeah here. that question is really easy so the the question that you have up there right now, this is kind of the point of these fusion inhibitors is that that even Robert Malone explained it once that if antibodies, for example, would work where you could fly over a, a, a small village, spray a coronavirus down, give all the people that are going to go into that place the antibodies that protect them and then go into the village when everybody's incapacitated, do what you need to do and get out. And then you have no trace. Well, the best way to do it is if you could do it mucosal wise. So you could inhale the protein and, and protect yourself and your mucosal layers from infection and then go in and the incapacitating agent, whether it was a virus or anything else, would be inhibited by the protein that you had on board. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the delivery mechanism that Shibo Jiang and Rob Gallagher or Bill Gallagher, they both recommended was intranasal or aerosolized spray because it goes right where it needs to, where the where the, the virus is going to be populated the most. It's right at the proper interface for a respiratory virus. And I'll give you one more thing that I just recently discovered is that in addition to the fusion inhibitors that way, in December, 2019, a paper was submitted that had a vaccine based on targeting the fusion, um, the fusion peptide. One of the people who was on that paper was Michael Warobi. So they were actually, they were actually trying to develop a vaccine targeting the fusion peptide for 
HIV, as I recall. And that paper wasn't published until um, August of 2020, but it was, it was sent forward on December 10th, 2019. So the, the, the fact that this idea of fusion inhibitors or fusion peptide would not be at the forefront of their mind is insane. They all knew about this. And the real question is, why did China put so much effort and energy into this? Which I believe is because it would be a great antidote <laughs> for a virus that was, that was coming out. And then B, why did we ignore it here in the United States? Because even today, Fauci, um, a couple like in May, Fauci doled out $577 million to nine different research centers, I think six of which were tied to the Proxima Origin authors, and to work on antivirals. But they have not worked on this type of antiviral because peptide inhibitors are an antiviral. So all of this, he, he is, not only is he refusing to investigate long COVID with grant funds, but they have completely ignored this obvious target it's that's stable in on the stable half of the spike protein. Like none of this makes sense in the context of the virus that we're fighting today. None. Yeah, this is just part of this totalitarian story of antiviral nihilism. Like they acted like there's nothing we can give you before you, you go to the hospital early on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but but in the meantime, they were working on uh, a different type of antiviral, um, perhaps the maybe pushing away the competition in order to have a justification for the spending on the research. I That would be a sick, I mean, I'm sure that was part of it, but, but that would be sick if that was the only, like to me. Yeah, it's not the only, but. What scares me, what scares me is that I cannot perceive of a logical reason why you would not at least throw money when you're throwing all of this money at this problem. Why you, why you throw zero money at a solution that is proven because now, even now, they've already shown that the same fusion inhibitor that was proposed, that they discovered in 2019, doesn't just work on all, all coronaviruses. It also works against HIV-1 and HIV-2 and the simian immunodeficiency virus. We're talking about something that works against all HIV, all coronaviruses, and the United States the NIAID, which this is their sole mission in life and reason for existence, they are putting zero money into something that has already been proven as a pan-coronavirus inhibitor. And what are we working on right now? A pan-coronavirus vaccine. Why? Are we not putting put zero dollars in? They are doing this, this peptide fusion, small protein fusion inhibitor research still. Like they, like Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. hey, just to point yeah, out really quick, remember I said that 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 China is not mandating the vaccine, but also remember that Pfizer has a gigantic, I mean gigantic footprint in China, and they have not rolled out a single mRNA shot there. Their best product ever rolled out in the entire Western world. And where they have a huge footprint in China, they're just not rolling it out at all. They don't need it. They don't, it's not beneficial for them. You have to think very carefully about why they're already only pushing Paxlovid over there and, and what that says about 
the campaign that's still ongoing here. So a uh, fact that I can uh, I learned from um, uh, actually Jill Malone the other day is that there are 81 mRNA vaccines of different types currently in testing. This is this is a type of vaccine that did not exist before 2020. Um, or I'll call it quasi vaccine or whatever you might want to call it. Um, it, it, it had not, it, you know, it, it, uh, from the initial concept from the, from, uh, Robert Malone's, you know, initial, you know, uh, proof of step, step one, uh, from all of that, you know, 30 years, you didn't have a workable product. And then <clears> suddenly, <throat> suddenly the, uh, there's this arrogance where they, they believe they can tell the world, sure, we can just, you know, spit these out. We've spit out 81 in a little over two years since the very first one, which happened to be at the very same moment. Uh, people hear this story. I, actually, I want to share this story because it's one of the anomalies. This will be our fifth anomaly for the day. We were told that the moment the, the uh, whole genome was sequenced for SARS-CoV-2, that it was handed off to one of these big pharmaceutical companies, and that that weekend, in a matter of hours, they already had the design for the vaccine. Now, people hear this story, and I've asked people, uh, including doctors, scientists, people in the know, I've asked people, which company was that? And people go, wait, was that Pfizer or Moderna? Anybody here know? Yes, it was Pfizer. Well, it was, it was Moderna. Okay, you're correct. It was both. Yeah, Moderna, well, and the VRC, the Vaccine Research Center, run by... That amazing. We just invented this over the weekend. It's never worked before, but we just invented this over the weekend. That story came out of both companies. And I think that they thought they could get away with telling the story because no one would realize that it was two stories and not one. One story sounds like an amazing moment. Two stories, you go, wait a minute, is that really coincidence? Did did both my neighbors really win the lottery this weekend? You know, it, it it's interesting. Well, and now, both of them, both of them also uh, retained the furin cleavage site when that had not been, like when that was antithetical. Bam, to the, bingo. The wow, <laughs> both of them thought to do the same thing that everyone had said don't do, right. independently as they invented the vaccines over a weekend. Yep, that's Ooh. amazing. <laughs> I don't know who is willing to believe that at this moment, but that's crazy. I mean, that is that is off the cliff crazy. Okay, now on the China issue, so Jay, you just mentioned that China has not rolled out an mRNA uh, shot despite Pfizer having a big footprint. And that reminded me that I, I'm a Wikipedia contributor in addition to Campfire Wiki, and now Wiki Spooks, actually, believe it or not. But... Um, it, I, it recalled something I had uh, I had contributed to Wikipedia, which was on the COVID-19 vaccine clinical research page, um, which surprisingly has not been taken down because it's true. But I found that Hong Kong is, in fact, using both the Comirnaty, a.k.a. Pfizer-BioNTech version and the Fosun-BioNTech mRNA shot. Those are both they're the same thing. Um, and they're both being offered in Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong, this may be the distinction, is still technically a special administrative region of China, as far as I understand. But that got me thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Could it be the case that 
only these special administrative regions are receiving mRNA options, and it is mainland China that's thus far not been offering them. Or were you mistaken? Uh, I, I would say that it's pro- it's most likely that they want to use them as a test bed. <laughs> yeah, because they don't they don't want to try it with everyone else. I know that they they've done similar things with the Uyghurs in uh, in Xinjiang province and in uh, Tibet. Well, they, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if if they were basically allowing this vaccine to be used kind of as a as an experiment that they did not want to try with the rest of the population. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and just while I have while I have your guys' attention, I'm very happy to announce we've received our first Rumble rants um, over on our Rumble stream, and I'm going to see if I can actually share it because this is important. Uh, it's very exciting for me, and I'm sure it's very exciting for Matthew. Just going to pull this up here so I can make sure to thank. We've got Kevin McCarran PhD has dropped us a twenty dollar Rumble rant. He says, "Support the stream, folks." Keep the computers on. This knowledge is golden. Beers on me, gents, which is just so kind. And then that was followed up by Stellina76, another $20 Rumble rant, who said, agree with Dr. K. Support the truth seekers and tellers. So thank you both so much. Uh, I think as content creators, everyone on the stage understands the importance of of independent support and community. Um, well, yeah, community support. So just want to take the moment and, and thank both of them very much for that. Uh, you, know, you know what's interesting about that is that Kevin McCarron is somebody that uh, I, I've thought about inviting on to uh, uh, as a guest for one of our discussions at some point in time. And uh, and Jonathan, if I understand correctly, you can you can hook us up with him, right? Uh, yeah, like make it make an introduction. Also, Charles can. Yes, absolutely. We're both friends with him, so okay. that's no problem. Got it. Um, well, okay. Let, let's uh, let's aim for a cutoff point. Let's see if like th- there's so much conversation to have, right, with the story. Um, I I didn't know that we were going to go in the directions we did. I've learned a ton, especially in the last half hour. Um, but uh, let, let let's pick a, mo- a point here. Um, some things that would tie up the direction that we've gone today, or the directions that we've gone, um, and uh, and then we'll you know we'll close things off for our viewers. Uh, but hey, we, I, I think that we're going to have to come back and do this again uh, because there are so many threads, and I think that that uh, collectively we'll be able to tie some more of those together as we go. But uh, Charles, uh, I'll I'll pass the baton to you. Uh, so I, I guess one thing, if we're going to try to put all this stuff together. What we need to understand is that <clears throat> whatever happened in Wuhan in 2019, in December 2019, or whenever it was. To me, I see this as there's two major concerns. One is what happened in Wuhan. And then two is what happened in our response to what happened in Wuhan. Because it's completely believable to me to think that whether it's whatever they were researching a bioweapon or just some virus, whatever that was they were doing in Wuhan. It's, it's understandable that it could leak or was on purpose. Th- that's one part of it. What concerns me as an American is what happened after that. Because as we've talked about today, we talked about the, the vaccines, the fusion inhibitors, and basically in every single case, everything that we've done has been antithetical to everything that we had been doing in the research for over previous decades. 
and with the fact that Tony Fauci has been basically the world leader in, in biomedical research, there was a lot of people just following in our stead because that's what we were doing. And that entire discussion, more than anything, has, has been what's been censored. And so for me, my first part of my research into the origin was all based on censorship. And it's kind of converging in this area. And then the vaccine concerns have been converging in this area. And the in antivirals and all of these different things are converging into one main point, which is there was this virus and, and the quasi-species and where did it come from? And then why did we do what we did in response to it? And I, I think if we knew, we're getting really, really close. And it's, it's because all of this stuff is converging. There's like consilience, as you know, Brett Weinstein or, or other people would say, everything that we're finding is pointing to the same track, which is why Jonathan and I, we've been working on similar on parts of this and none of it has been disproven because all of it is leading directly into the same place. And so that's why I feel confident in where we are now. That's why I think other scientists and, and, and leaders around us are feeling confident too, because I think we're heading in the right direction and it's scary, but at the same time, it's, it's motivating because it means that we're starting to ask the right questions and starting to get answers to those questions. And so that, that, that gives me a lot of optimism. So Jonathan, before I pass the baton to you, um, uh, what Charles is doing is he's making a, an epistemological point. Um, this question that he's, that he's focusing back on is why did we do what we did? And what that is to say is he's not just researching down a path of what all happened, which he's done for some crazy number of hours now, some, some thousands of hours now. Um, it's not just that he's doing this research. It's that whatever the knowledge framework is that he's put together, all the information that we've discussed today and that we haven't discussed today because there's so much of it, um, points at, at a question to ask that is such an important question to ask. And that is, why did our sphere of governance behave and operate the way that it did as opposed to some other way that seems to have been more logical to the facts if it were a matter of you know what we thought was the course of our society perhaps but maybe the question is simply even broader than that that we can't even ask it in one way we just have to be asking it so now jonathan i'll pass to you wow that's so that threw me for a loop there um the thing that that i think that that you brought up earlier and that i would just like to emphasize to everybody is that the <clears throat> the way that they are currently purporting to molecularly describe the pandemic is disingenuous so they're using pcr and they've changed the the standard of pcr if you look into it more more thoroughly you will see that they're not testing for the spike protein anymore they're testing for two different epitopes of the n and an epitope on the rna dependent rna polymerase but what that means is that they have a target and that the PCR can amplify in some people. They haven't shown you at all, except for the FDA has some documents apparently describing how they're specific for this coronavirus and not for any of the others 
that we know are around, which is what I talked about at the beginning. And so the the important thing to see there then is, is that that line of products is still going strong and their use of those products is unprecedented. We've never used a diagnostic of this nature to immediately identify a case of a disease without the requirement of symptoms before, with the exception of HIV and AIDS. And so I think that's the main sort of message that we started out from the beginning was that they have bamboozled you into thinking that before 2020, nobody was dying of something that now a lot of people are dying from. And so they've shuffled around the way you think about all-cause mortality and the way you think about coronaviruses in the background of your life. And uh, that bamboozlement has enabled them to roll out all of these different products en masse. And they seem to be continuing to push the same brittle narrative under the idea that they can keep pushing these products. And that's that's the best that I can see it. Um, that's the least pessimistic way that I can see it at this stage. Yep. All right. Uh, there's no way to wrap up a conversation like this. So um, let, let's just go ahead and say uh, we're going to try to do this again. And uh, and maybe we'll uh, our, our knowledge will come together. And I, I've got some threads that I want to research myself if I've got time outside of my own projects. But uh, um, thanks, guys, for for coming and talking with us. Um, you know, it, it's it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, you know, this is a, a weighty conversation. And um you know, thanks for sharing all the work that you've done, because it's, you know, for anybody who's watching, you know, these two guys have spent, you know, probably more than 10,000 hours, you know, between them uh, trying to track down very specific pieces uh, of important pieces of all that's gone on uh, since since we first heard things. And I'm just going to mention uh, Jonathan and Charles. Uh, yesterday, I talked with uh, Leo Biddle, and uh, you may want to watch that interview because he has his own interesting vector of information, uh, you know, running his orangutan sanctuary in Borneo. He was hearing about things in October. And October 18th was when the, the military game started in Wuhan. So uh, he's actually going back to check his email to see if he had, you know, some kind of uh, advanced warning of this. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out because it came to mind. But, um, you know, let, let's go ahead and wrap things up. So, and Jay and Charles, can you uh, tell the audience how can folks support your guys's work? How can they support Drastic? Um, and before you answer that, I've pulled up gigaownbiological.com, which is Jay's site. And I've also pulled up the Twitch stream, which I've been tuning into regularly as of late. And uh, it is it is some of the most interesting uh, uh, discussion and analysis on exactly what we've been talking about that I've that I've seen in a while. So, is there anything, Jay, in addition to what I've shown here that people could uh, do to tune in and support you? That's the best way. If people can share that, that would be great. Thanks a lot for putting that up there. Of course. And how about you, Charles? Uh, <laughs> I've been rather busy the past month, uh, moving and and packing and everything, but. Um, Typically, everything I do runs through uh, my Substack. So just per Prometheus Shrug, Prometheus Shrug .substack .com, because there they can. <laughs> I, I like to say I don't. I don't. You don't have to pay to to subscribe, but you can donate through subscription or or through PayPal, and and all that stuff is on uh, on my Substack. But 
basically everything I do is there or just on Twitter itself. Fantastic. I'm just pulling it up to make sure people can see it and know what to look for. This is Prometheus Shrugged dot substack.com at charles rixey on twitter gentlemen thank you so much and um i agree with matthew can't wait to have you back on again and look at that we're actually finishing seven minutes ahead of schedule which is another first for today <laughs> well, I, I can guarantee you it's not because we finished <laughs> laying out our stuff but just uh because we picked a smart time to to pause because hey, we can literally talk here for for two weeks without stopping and there's still be more to talk about i completely agree Okay, Jay, Charles, thank you again. Um, yeah, I mean, Matthew, that was, uh, again, I wrote down a lot of notes um, a lot of times in these episodes. Um, thankfully, I've had the chance to learn uh, and, and speak in advance to a lot of our guests. Uh, but this time, there were so many really um, specifically academic things that I hadn't heard before that I'm now going to uh, look into more. Um, I assume it's the case with you. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one thing I realized is, is uh, I in 2020, I was keeping up with what was going on in China a bit. Um, but uh, hearing uh, Jonathan talk now, I realize it's been months since I've really updated my, you know, understanding of what's going on in China, particularly well, uh, whatever mm. people have seen on the news with like the Shanghai shutdown. Um, I'm sure that we are getting a, you know, very small and chosen, you know, vector of view of what's going on there. But um, we should be thinking about it. China has very often been a laboratory of broader global authoritarian steps. It, yeah. it, really, it feels that way. It seems that way. And if it hasn't looked like it before, people should be thinking about that question now, not necessarily thinking, hey, what we're told, U.S.-China rivalry. Um, I don't think that that model of the world is correct. And I haven't thought it was correct for years. And for anybody um, you know, who doesn't know my, my prior past history, I was an Asian bond specialist. And I even considered, uh, I, I was invited uh, to move to China to to build uh, a, a large flagship education program there. Um, I, I've been paying attention uh, and, and had many contacts there for many years. Um, and and it, it's always felt to me like there was some sort of a corporate tie between the two nations that, that wanted to make it appear more adversarial than not. And mm -hmm. I say that so that people will chew on it you know, digest it, think about what that means, and then try to look toward China, see what information we can get. It's hard with the Great Firewall. Yes. I think that's, I think that's the true purpose of it, is not to uh, keep people in China from finding out that people in the West, you know, had different, I don't know, television, video games, blue jeans. Uh, it, it's not like the old Cold War era. Uh, I, I think that more than anything, it's to contain what's going on in the laboratory. I think you're right. It's good to have something to digest on for the next week. Well, folks, um, we'll be back this Friday for the Rounding the News weekly news update. And in the meantime, uh, the best way to support the show, in addition to these wonderful Rumble rants we've had today, which once again, thank you very much. Um, you can also visit the sponsor and partner page of the Rounding the Earth Substack. That link is already in the description, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, the absolute best way to support Rounding the Earth is to become a paid subscriber to the newsletter. Uh, if you are already a free subscriber, consider upgrading to paid. Uh, I said this a number of times now. There's some very uh, interesting Bitcoin insight. Uh, that's that's all I can say about that. But there's privileges for the paid members. But beyond that, you being here today, folks, and watching this uh, is what makes this worthwhile. It's what makes this uh, 
uh, important because I'll say we have 88 people watching right now live on Rumble. That is by far the most people we've ever had tune in to a live uh, session like this. We've also had a pretty healthy, uh, we hit up to 20 on YouTube, which seems small, but just think about that many people in a room and engaging with them in real life. And it all of a sudden, uh, the, the reality of that many people becomes much more times as many people watching on rumble as YouTube. That's interesting. And That's you know what, Matthew, behind the scenes, we, we knew that we would want rumble, uh, to be sort of where we send people because unfortunately YouTube is not a platform we have long-term confidence in. And, you know, we haven't been struck so far and frankly, I'm thankful for that, but what a good start to have four times as many people on rumble as YouTube. That's just amazing. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much, folks. Uh, I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me www.liamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. Rounding the Earth is at edu engineer on Twitter. www.roundingtheearth.substack.com. And that'll be enough plugs for the day. We will see you on Friday. Mm -hmm.